Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. This is Dr. Simon talking to you from hot, damp, buggy, cova-ridden Florida. Um, my show today is entitled The Mysterious Story of the Self. And I think it's important that we discuss the self, but it's a difficult thing to talk about. Uh, It's a slippery concept. And the only way I've ever been able to approach it is through my thinking about or reading about the work of philosophers. So as I always say, when I write something, if I'm going to talk about, write about philosophy to set up a topic, or I am going to, let's see what we have here. Hello? Yes. Hi, Larry. It's Chuck. Okay. Let me just do my finish of my setup and we can start talking. Okay. And maybe we'll be joined by other people, which would be nice. Uh, so... It's, it's, I approach this from a kind of philosophical point of view. And again, whenever I write about philosophy or talk about it, I apologize in advance. Uh, philosophy uh, covers a very broad range of topics. But why I've always loved it, and, and uh, somewhere about the middle of my career, I virtually stopped reading psychology. Uh, there was very little new that I ever came to it, came in it. But when I read philosophy about psychology, uh, today I'll mention a couple of books. Um, uh, uh, One of my best professors in graduate school, Isidore Chine, wrote a book called The Science of Behavior and the Image of Man. And it's largely a kind of a Talmudic uh, philosophy in which he tries to define out uh, the idea of what the self is. And he even defines the self as the hereness in the thereness. And I'll talk a little bit about that uh, in a moment. Uh, one of my favorite uh, books is by a woman named Anita Craig, who wrote a book called What is the Self? A Philosophy of Psychology. In order to come at the concept, you really have to stand outside the concept. My whole idea of psychotherapy is that we live by stories. And we get trapped in a story. We can't see an alternative to the facts and the morals and the guidance of behavior that the story sets up. But when you talk to somebody who asks questions, it doesn't force you, but asks questions and you voluntarily begin to question aspects of your own story, you in a way become a philosopher of the story. And that allows all kinds of very profound changes to take place. But when you get to the self, you really have this difficult notion. Chuck, let me ask you a question. You're going to be my Mm -hmm. foil here for a moment. What are you doing tonight? What am I doing tonight? Yeah, what are you going to do tonight? I have no idea. When we're done here, I'll probably go think about what's dinner. Okay, there you go. Now I'm going to ask you a question. I'm going to think about dinner. Huh? I think that was a trick question, right? No, it was a setup oh, question. Okay. <laughs> uh, what's the I in the sentence that does the thinking about dinner? Right. right. What does it there refer to? It's the subject. There is none? Well, there, it, 
the I in the sentence grammatically is the subject of the sentence. Yes. And the subject generates the thinking mm-hmm. or the eating of dinner. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's a noun. And the noun is usually the name of a person, place, or thing. Right. Here's, the, here's, the, here's where we get stuck and we have a lot of fun. You and I know, I know you believe it's not a thing. Right. It's not an object, yet it's give, it, we experience it as a noun. And that's okay. You don't have to think about it. But we get into all kinds of trouble if we don't realize that it's not a noun. Even though we experience it as a noun, and I don't think we can experience it any other way. Otherwise, we're not a person who is capable of generating action, taking responsibility, making choices. Mm -hmm. And you and I have discussed this before. Those are very important aspects of us as human beings. How can you be a moral human being if you can't take responsibility for your choices and there's no one responsible for making the choices? What do you think? <laughs> no more setup. <laughs> well, I, th- I think it's, it's more than just how can you be a moral human being. I know you and I have spoke about that issue before. Maybe we differ a little bit on morality, but uh, I don't see how one can be even an existential uh, human or thing if you don't see it as I. Now, clearly in our society, uh, we rely on that concept to charge crimes and to punish people and to um, you know do those kinds of things. And reward and it, them. It, yes, and reward them. And it seems, you know, for practical purposes, I think it works well in many places, even though it may not be literally true, um, that the concept of I is a grammatical and experiential concept. There is, I, w- I would challenge anybody to locate I, uh, to, you know, take a picture of I. Right. And I don't mean our body or our face, because that's not I. We can have parts of our body removed, and we still have the sense of I. And it's not right. our brain, and it's not any part in our brain either. So, yes, it's very elusive, and I, I think some of the Eastern philosophies um, think of it in terms of that humans are um, manifestations of nature. It's just nature displaying itself, and we happen to experience that. Yes. Um, but we're not necessarily independent of all of that. And we can't examine the eye. Because if I try to focus on what I am, what myself is, mm-hmm. it's I who's doing the observing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we have a problem. But you see, one of the reasons I got stuck in this is because I'm a psychologist. Mm-hmm. And I realized when I was working with people, <clears throat> people will ascribe not only facts to the I, but morals and moral judgments to it as a noun. I am a bad person. I am a piece of shit. I am the most awful human being on the face of the earth. And very often they heard this externally from parents, 
and they assumed, or somebody is labeled, they commit a crime. You are a criminal. Some of the saddest I always get involved with is I am a schizophrenic. I am mentally ill. And now, how do you get out of that trap? Right. Because if that's the center of the story you live by, and I don't know if you, you I, I sent out an email before. I'm reading a book now um, called Cast. And it's one of those books that, for me anyway, just lights up every. It's just so wonderful. Uh, she's a Pulitzer Prize writer who writes about uh, being black in America. Mm-hmm. And this book is about her awareness that co- people of color in this, it's not merely prejudice, but they're part of a caste. And she describes three castes in the world, the Jews in Europe that culminated in the, in the um, Holocaust, mm-hmm. the Indians who have the untouchables as the low level of their caste, and Again, people of color in America. And the more I thought about this, the more I realized, for me anyway, once somebody says, I am a schizophrenic and I have to take the drugs for the rest of my life and I have to be in therapy for the rest of my life and I have to believe the story that I really can't live my life except as a schizophrenic. I have to be careful, otherwise I'm going to bounce right back into the hospital that's a cast. It meets all the criteria of a cast. And, and it's I think based, it, as you say, on on narrative. Yes, on, a narrative is based on that the story I, the noun, am defective, rather than I did something that got me into trouble. I hallucinated. I made up a story that everybody else thinks crazy. And because I can't get anybody to agree with me, it's a delusion. And the delusion now becomes one of the defining so-called symptoms of the schizophrenia. And I am a schizophrenic. Mm -hmm. And that's a horrible way to live. And it's a pejorative label, too. It's not oh, just it's a like terrible, you, you terrible say, pejorative. If I happen to have chronically high blood glucose, uh, I'm called a diabetic. But that's not pejorative. Because That's it's just not a you. medical description. Yes, because you see, my body doesn't produce right. insulin. Exactly. It's not and moral. It's a it's a description of what's wrong with the body, but it's not a description of what's wrong with me as a human being in moral terms. Right. So how do we get out of this? Or even I would you think realize that what you're doing, I don't on Tuesday. You don't have to do on Wednesday. If you right. could find another way of, of, of behaving, or you find people who accept what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's simple, but it's complex. It's really a, a, a philosophical issue. And I really do believe, as a psychologist, and I'm not in the field, you know, I'm half in and half out. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to work again. I mean, I was thinking of setting up. A, 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 a virtual practice of some kind. That means working at night and, and working late. I, I don't want to do that anymore, and I won't teach anymore. I don't think I have the energy to teach anymore. So I'm finished like that as a professional, except for this and some writing. 
But it frees me to be a voice that says we have to stop making pejorative statements about people and pretending that we're talking about something other than their behavior, which then gets attached to the idea of the self as a noun and becomes the defining element of that self. Because then they're trapped. Unless they can it's precisely that. why the it's precisely why the mental health system is in actuality a moral system, a moralizing system. Which you say very well and clearly in your book. Yeah, identifying oh. behaviors and experiences that are considered wrong, inappropriate, far different than diabetes and cancer and and uh, high blood pressure, which are physiological things in the body that are that threaten living, these things aren't things that are defective about one person because of this concept. There's no person to be defective. It's about one's behaviors and experiences, and, um, and, and there's no natural delineation between those that are considered inappropriate or mentally ill and those that are not. And it changes based on culture, based on time, Absolutely. But it gets attached. See, the basic thing that sticks in my throat is it gets attached to the word I, Mm -hmm. which we experience as a noun. Rather than say, whatever I am, I do these things. And whatever I do could be done differently under different circumstances. And to me, that's the part of the essential part of what I call therapy to get to a point where you could say, well, I did bad things. I'm going to say I'm sorry. I'm going to atone. I'm going to promise not to do the bad things again. But once you assume that you're bad, you're evil, that at the core of your identity as a noun, it's the defining element, you are, you're finished. You're trapped. There's no mm-hmm. way out. And, and well, to there, me, you know, there are thought, other situations where it's, not about your bad in a way, I guess. So you're talking about doing bad things and then atoning and, and apologizing for that. But there are experiences that are painful and those and, and the, the report of that experience is labeled mentally ill. Exactly. You as a person is mentally ill. Not because it was you did something wrong. It's just well in a way, yes, the system says it's wrong in that it's inappropriate for one to do that, but it's not wrong like most people think, I harmed someone, and then I apologize for that. So if I happen to hear a voice talking to me when others around me don't hear that, I'm not hurting anybody. I'm not harming anyone. I'm just troubled by this idea that I hear voices and you don't, but still I'm called wrong inappropriate yes. because I'm and not it's but it's not to that you're that. told you're doing you're hearing something that no you know I once said to this I worked with one woman for about 10 years and she taught me more oh wait a second I think I just lost my um, what did I do I went to talk oh, good I'm back um, I said to her Louise the voices aren't real and she looked at me for about 10 seconds 20 seconds she says the voices say you are not real <laughs> and walked out the door. She came back because we would already had established a relationship. But I know I couldn't tell her that. But mm-hmm. later on, she understood. One of the reasons that she and many of the other people I work with 
in the clinic were, were in such absolute terror is that they knew the voices weren't real because they heard them on a diff- as a different way. Right. She knew the voice was telling her something. It was different than I was telling her something. It had a different experience. Mm-hmm. So because she didn't feel she was in control of the voice, was more terrifying than the voice itself. Because she had two voices, two, two. One that told her she had caused everything bad in the world. And when she was a child, her mother, who was a rather fanatical person, had told her she was, in fact, responsible for everything bad that ever happened in the world. And she picked up the paper when she was six or seven years old and saw the pictures of the concentration camps that had been liberated. And she assumed she had done that, which kids can actually figure out in their pre-operational thinking. But then there was another side to the voices who told her she was an immortal poetess and that she was never going to give up. She never really experienced that the voices as real, but it was the fact that she wasn't creating them that was so terrifying. That's what was so frightening. She was not, it was not I am hearing the voices. I'm sorry, I am not creating the voices. I just hear them. Because it was outside the realm of what anything she can control. And that took a lot of work. But ultimately, I got her to say, sometimes it sounds like a radio. And she could, with some effort, turn the volume down. Mm-hmm. So she turned the volume up when she was being told she was an immortal poetess. And turned the volume down when she was told she was the devil's spawn and she shouldn't mm-hmm. be she shouldn't be allowed to live. Curious, That's who did all. she think the voices were from? She never she never defined them in any way. I tried to huh. get was it a woman's voice, was it a man's mm-hmm. voice? Was was it your mother's voice? Um mm-hmm. she never would go there particularly, but she never really could define because they really were voices that were human in sound to a degree, and they spoke in English. The world of voices were in English. Mm-hmm. But they, she knew that they weren't real people talking to her. Right. She didn't see the Not, people either. She just heard the right. voices. She, you know, about, only one time a year did that happen. I work with her 10, 12 years. I would go on vacation in August. And when I came back, I had to call the hospital to get her out. She said, when you left, I got so lonely, I turned the voices way up. Wow. That, that, talk about transference. Uh-huh. To me, that was all fascinating stuff, really fascinating. Um, and for, to someone with, without experience of that or knowing somebody or working with somebody like we do who experiences that, they would say, Something's wrong with that person. Yes, she's sick. With them. Something, and, but no one, even the professionals, could ever come up with a, well, what is wrong with them? There's no identification of that eye that you're addressing. Yes. Where's the defective nature of the eye that is causing that experience that has yet yes. ever, never been yes. discovered? Now, I know probably 80% of the people... The lay public think it's because there's a chemical imbalance and those, those kinds of things, and those are just myths. Um, but it, it does show you the 
that how different this is from real illnesses that are caused by some kind of defect in the body. But, but you see, when we're talking this way, we're now at the center of the mystery. And it really remains a mystery. How okay. the hell do yeah. we construct this, this sense of I? What mm-hmm. you and I know is the result of activity. It's action. Mm-hmm. That it feels like I am in control. I am making this happen. Yeah, I am and I am, in, I am somewhere in my head. I'm located there, right. but I'm not. Why not? And we agree. I mean, we absolutely were on the same exact page. But that doesn't mean I don't experience. You know, it was one of the studies I came across some years ago. If you ask people, where are you? I'm behind my eyes. Mm-hmm. I'm floating somewhere behind my eyes. We know there's nothing. You can take the best tests in the world, and there's no anything there. There's neurological activity, there's hormonal activity, but there's no actual being. It's not a number. Yeah, like on the the scene on uh, uh, Men in Black, I don't know if you've seen it, where the the alien uh, dies and is in an autopsy, and they twist his ear, and his face comes off. And there's a little homunculus sitting back there driving the machine. There's nothing like that with us. No. We are. No. The, we are. No. There's, there's no ghost we're in a mystery, the machine. as you said. It is a mystery. Okay. But when I, I want people to try, I, I try to do this online. When I, I'll write to people, you know, I, you know, with some of those messages that I send out on ISCP, the emails. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You are not a schizophrenic. You never had schizophrenia. You did something that was judged. And most of the people, by the way, I work with, because what happened in the 70s was deinstitutionalization in New York, and they emptied out mental hospitals. Mm-hmm. So that my clinic, when I got there in the, in the late 60s, really had an, a, a working class population, mostly of Irish people. Um, and the, most of the people I work with were heavy drinkers or the wives of heavy drinkers who came to therapy believing there was something wrong with them because their husbands drank so much. You know, they would go to the bar after work, and then they would come home mm-hmm. and start drinking. Um, but when the, 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 the hospital was emptied out, we became the designated outpatient clinic. And I had been taught, I don't know about you, that schizophrenics are for life, and you can't do therapy with them. They have to take drugs. And one of your responsibilities is to see to it that they take the drugs, that, that they're responsible about their medication. And most of the people I work with, once the crisis in their life was over, stopped hearing voices and stopped hallucinating. But what they couldn't escape was the definition of the self as a diseased entity. Mm-hmm. That was always tough. That was always tough. And there was no real solution to it. If, you know, I work with, again, I wrote about this in the book, one of my favorite patients who came in, and she had a horrendous childhood. And she had a breakdown, whatever that experience was, went into Creedmoor, which was the hospital, and came out, and convinced she could never do anything she used to love to do. Now, this woman had been an executive, very successful. 
in spite of all the problems at home, the abandoned father, the drug-addicted brother, the, the, the nutty mother that blamed her for everything that went wrong, she used to love, among all things, making dinner parties. Mm-hmm. So after two years, we talked about it. She was going to make a dinner party and invite her friends. She did this. She set it up. She was like a different person, Chuck. She was alive. I mean, really like alive. Mm-hmm. The night before, I didn't know this, but the night before the dinner, two nights before the dinner party, no, the night before, she had her medication appointment with a doctor that I hated and who hated me. I mean, he was loathsome. I come in, and she scratched out the appointment. I was really looking forward to hearing about the dinner party because this was a big step for her. Where is she? My friend was the director, and we were friends. She said, well, she told Dr. whatever his name was, because I remember the name. She told him that she couldn't sleep the night before she was excited. What do you think he did, Chuck? Oh, yeah, gave gave her some drugs to help her sleep. He gave her doubled her medication. And told her she went through with this party who's going to have her hospitalized. Wow. And that he then went to the director who caved in immediately and removed her from my list of clients. Hmm. So we had a meeting together, and that was the closest I've ever come as an adult to punching somebody. He sat there smirking and saying, she's a schizophrenic And the most she could ever hope for is to stay out of the hospital. I said, fuck you. And I wrote out my resignation. I was there 25 years, and I said, I couldn't stay here another minute. That's... A couple of years later, I met a good friend of mine who was still there. He said, now there's no therapy going on. There's group medication. They medicate them publicly in a group talk about reinforcing the the damage and basically we get into trouble if we do anything really other than support uh, the the use of the medication and he he, you know part of his livelihood there he was still I don't know what happened after I moved down here we lost contact but it it was unbelievable I mean it was a nightmare in the the 70s you said right when that happened? That was in the 70s, into yeah. the early 80s. Yeah that's, yeah, that's still going on. I mean, even though right after that, um, with Lauren Mosher's work at Soteria Project, demonstrated that that kind of so-called help for people who are labeled schizophrenic isn't as effective as other more humane ways, um, it still goes on to this day. There are, I yeah. read about one in but the book. But it's the making of a, a cast. It literally, yeah, absolutely. Me, it's the making of a cast. You yeah, have once to you're know identified, your place. you're identified. Yeah. Yeah. And you're going to be a part of the drug market for the rest of your life, because I think that's another part of what's behind it. You're, 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 you're a consumer of drugs. You're going to, you know, you, you have your health insurance, you pay the copay, and that's mm-hmm. it for the rest of your life. Okay. Uh, it's a tragedy. It's, it's immoral. It's wrong. It is harmful. Um, it's deadly. Yes, it is. And you and I know what the answer is. Mm-hmm. 
It's getting rid of the, getting ourselves extricated from that whole from medical the, model in the DSM and psychiatry. Yeah. And we, you and I both know psychiatrists who don't believe the model and don't actually do the work that way. You know, when I was at ICSPP, I was made friends with guys whose practice was getting people off the drugs. Mm-hmm. And they would do some form of supportive therapy or analytic therapy or refer them out to, you know, to somebody who would work with them and not insist and not get frightened by what they were being told so that they would, instead of work with the this, this so-called symptom, the behavior, and try to help, uh, you know, an understanding of it for them and, and the individual. Um, uh, but that doesn't quite exist much anymore. I think it exists less than it did in 2000, 2003. Right. Well, and frankly, I think that there's, there, in many cases, um, the the traditional psychiatric treatment is iatrogenic. In other words, it it creates the problem that doesn't have to yeah. be there. And I've had many experiences with people yes. who, and, and what would otherwise be considered seriously disturbed people, that once they found out they weren't suffering from dissociative identity disorder or schizophrenia, a whole new world opened up to them of possibilities and how to address the problems that they were experiencing in life. And up to that point, they took on the identity of I am a multiple personality person or I'm a schizophrenic. And that's right. what stopped it for them. Right. But there's a flip side to that, don't you think? If, you are, if I am doing this, then in some way I am responsible I mean, I don't know about... Well, you mean existentially was, was, responsible or morally yeah, yes. responsible? Yes, well, responsible. I must be doing that. I'm doing something wrong. And now you're not... If you're told you're sick, you're not responsible. Oh, right, yeah. And uh, that, I, that was the essence of well, Eric Fromm, Escape from Freedom, mm-hmm. a largely philosophical book, <laughs> which, you know, not too many philosophical books written that way that they were, you know, in the, in the post-Freudian era. Mm-hmm. Um, but on a scale, I'm not responsible for what I do. And then, you know, one of the things I discuss in the book was the legal system where the lawyer goes into court. I had a woman who had been raped, violently raped. And the guy was caught. And at the trial, uh, he had a psychiatrist testify and the judge bought his diagnosis of intermittent explosive disorder <laughs> and gave him three months probation on the condition that he go for psychotherapy. And as they w- walked out of the court, he winked at her. Hmm. And she was in therapy, she said, because of two rapes. He raped her, and then the court raped her. Mm-hmm. And they did. Because that's the flip side of this. If you're really a, a, a dangerous person, isn't it nice to know you're sick and you can't help yourself and you're not Instead responsible? Of dangerous? Yeah, right. I'm not damn, I'm just sick. Right. The whole thing has to go, Chuck. And I know it won't be in my lifetime, that's for sure. Or it mine. Be. Hopefully you're, you're young enough that maybe it will be. Um, yeah. Thank you for calling me But we've got to keep pushing. 
I, oh, absolutely. I, I think it's 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 very worthy for us to do this, even if we're a, a, a minor element in the system and we're uh, more like little dogs just nipping at the heels of big dogs just to bother them enough so that people listen. And I, I think the I think the effective way to do this is to talk to consumers instead of trying to talk to the you know the professionals as much as the consumers because once the consumers quit buying the product there will be no need for the product if that can happen yes yeah in fact i'm thinking of writing you know after we talked last time i thought thinking maybe i write another book called a consumer's guide you have that in your title uh, it's in, an insider's warning to consumers. An yeah. insider's warning. I want to write, although now I'm starting to advertise my book on Facebook as, mm-hmm. in part, a consumer's guide. Mm-hmm. I yeah, don't know actually, if it'll the help. genesis of this book that I wrote was the initial idea was I wanted to write a small pamphlet kind of a thing that you might see in the grocery store checkout line for people who are <laughs> interested in this. Right. And it just. You know how it how it goes when you start writing. You just keep writing and right. writing and writing. I don't do know. Right. Yeah. And by the way, you're going to look at your book uh, in a while. Maybe not now. In a while, you'll say, gee, I left this out. I want oh, to gosh, say yeah. this more. <laughs> right? So you wrote a 400-page pamphlet. <laughs> well, 350, I think, is something. Oh, okay. Like that. that's, that's a With big all pamphlet. With indexes and stuff. <laughs> you know, it covers right. everything. Yeah. So I may try to get a, a, a publisher, but I just don't really want to write write this again. Um, uh, so I'm going to keep pushing the book, and I'm going to keep doing my show here. Mm-hmm. Um, I have people who write who do respond to these shows. Uh, I have somebody in in, in England, somebody in, in oh, it's actually in Scotland, and I mm-hmm. have somebody in Australia. And you know, it'll maybe who knows what'll happen. From little acorns, giant oaks grow. Is that how the saying goes? Yeah, yeah. Well, we ought to. Uh, I think I'll do. I'll, I'll publish it again on uh, ICEP's Facebook and Twitter. We'll send out a blurb about this just to remind people, and that goes to a lot more than just our listserv or our members. Um, so that that would help. You know, I hope that people put who the, are following the our page on. will will. We'll call in, yeah. Yeah. Um, do you know who M.K., what's her last yes. name? Um, Mendoza. Mendoza. Uh-huh. She contacted me last week. Oh, wow. Very excited that she had heard my show with um, Jim Gottstein. Uh-huh. And thought it was a, and suggested maybe I would do a show with her, a podcast with her. Mm-hmm. And she would have me on uh, and discuss my book. <clears throat> uh, yeah, I think you ought to take her up on it. MK, MK is a, an ISEP member. She's on the list. Yeah, I know. I thought um, she got she's, to it. Uh, she's on the board of directors now. Uh, she I wrote was, back to her, and she hasn't yeah. answered me now in four days, five days. Yeah, she's very busy. She, I'm sure she, she is. Uh, she's an Emmy yeah. Award winner. I read that. My yeah. goodness. And she, she's a uh, very important person, and I would, I would, oh, I'd give anything for her to to uh, get on my case a little bit, push a little bit for me. Oh, she'd I would love be very to talk grateful. with you. Yeah, she has. She's always had an interest in trying to um, 
uh, fight against the inhumaneness of the mental health system. Yeah. And uh, I, I don't know how she ended up in Santa Fe at the public radio station she's at now. I know she had two programs. She interviewed me on a couple of them last year, and um, she has one now. And, you know, as you know, if you speak up too much against the status quo, you get a lot of criticism. Oh, they come after uh, you. Yeah. But, yeah, she's, I mean, she's yeah. a wonderful person. She did our, uh, with her experience in radio and TV, she she recorded our conference last year. Oh, um, she refers to it as the mental health system. She, I'm sorry? She refers to it as the mental health system. Oh, mental health system. Not mental health, mental health. Right, right. I love that. I thought that was fabulous. Mm-hmm. It's, it's very apt. Anyway, I think we've covered it. Okay. Unless you have something you'd like to put on the air here. Well, no, I think I think that the you've touched on a very fundamental weakness of the mental health system um, because, as we've already pointed out, the real health issues are identified by physiological defect. Right. And so-called mental health. Uh, or mental illness is uh, it's hard to identify it other than just to say it's a loose consensus among traditional psychiatrists and allied mental health professionals about what's inappropriate not of what's what you do effective. that's in that's judged inappropriate yeah. Yeah. and more than yeah. that it's just not saying what you did hurt me or what you did was illegal it's saying what you did was wrong and you are the problem, which gets back to yes, your idea exactly of emphasizing right. this concept right. of I. Right. right. So it's not that you've done no something that. that might be changed, behavior that could be changed. Absolutely. Because, again, the, the horror stories I was told over and over again, I must have worked with 100, 150 people had come out of Creedmoor, and some of them for a long time. Mm-hmm. And... Again, the first thing I discovered was like they're just as human and just as ordinary as anybody else, and they were all under such terrible, terrible duress and pressure when when they engaged in whatever it is. They, I mean, you know, I don't know how you can create a voice that that you you've created it, but you can't understand how you even did it. But after it was all over, after the horror was over. It all went away, and it wasn't because of those stupid drugs. It's because they were now in a different situation. Yeah. It was a different phase of life. There was no reason to construct whatever it is they had constructed. Right. Anyway, I'm going to say goodbye. I'll say goodbye, and, too, Larry, and thanks for having me on And I'm going to thank you today. again very much for coming on the show. It's nice to talk to somebody who answers back because most of the time I'm talking into air. And and if you talk into air enough, you start to wonder, do I need to see a psychiatrist? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, have a good evening. All right. Take care, my friend. And we'll we'll, we'll keep in touch. Take care. All right. Bye. 
All right. There's nobody else calling in. I'm sorry about that. I've done enough. Uh, I, I keep pushing my book, Psychotherapy and the Stories We Live By, and I think also uh, Chuck's book um, is also a really terrific book to read. And uh, <laughs> I lost the title for a second. Uh, I'll, I'll find it. I'll tell it again next week. Um, take care and good night.